This is The Rounds Table. All good things must come to an end. And so it is with our first season as your inaugural host on The Rounds Table. Thank you listeners for tuning in yet another week. We have a very special episode for you this week. We're going to do a best of the 2016-2017 Rounds Table season. And I am honored to be joined by my producer, Emily Hughes, and our new editor, Emilio Garcia Flores, who are sitting right next to me to take us through these best of articles. Ten articles lined up. Let's get right to it. First one, the Fourier trial, Evolucumab and clinical outcomes in patients with cardiovascular disease in the New England Journal of Medicine. Your typical patient that you might see to apply this evidence to is a 60-year-old gentleman who comes in and has known coronary artery disease. He's on reasonably good medical therapy, including a high-dose statin. This trial was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that treated patients with evolucumab, a PCSK9 inhibitor, at 140 milligrams subcutaneously every two weeks or 420 milligrams monthly. And they looked at a primary outcome of a composite of cardiovascular events over approximately a two-year period. There were over 25,000 patients included in the trial, and they primarily found that evolucumab decreased cardiovascular events in patients with established coronary artery disease who were already on high-dose statins. Your absolute risk reduction was about 2%, and your number needed to treat over a two-year period was approximately 74. The main limitation of this study was that it was an event-driven study, which are known to exaggerate or occasionally limit benefits, but probably the short follow-up was the biggest limitation which we know can exaggerate benefits in some instances. Coming in second place, we have a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine titled The Prevalence of Pulmonary Embolism Among Patients Hospitalized for Syncope. This was a study that applied to patients that presented with their first episode of syncope that might be tachypneic, tachycardic, and with signs of DVT. This again was a multi-centered cross-sectional study and their exposure was to stratify patients into a likely or unlikely category using the well score and the D-dimer results. Those that were in the likely category went on to have a CT pulmonary angiogram or a VQ scale. So the bottom line was that in patients admitted for their first episode of syncope, a pulmonary embolism was identified in 17% of individuals, including 13% of individuals who had an alternative explanation for their syncope. And some of the limitations were that the denominator did not include those that were discharged. And for a homegrown pitch from the University of Toronto, Dr. Amol Verma, who is our faculty mentor at the rounds table here, published a research letter in the JAMA Internal Medicine very recently from his Gemini database that questioned the findings of the PISIT study because in their cohort of general internal medicine patients who were admitted for syncope, they only found an incidence of 1.7% of those with pulmonary embolism. So we still haven't reached clinical equipoise when it comes to the prevalence of syncope and the approach to its diagnosis in patients admitted with syncope. Coming in at third was a research study published in JAMA in 2016 that looked at the effects of escitalopram on all-cause mortality and hospitalization in patients with heart failure and depression so-called the MOOD-HF trial. Patients in this trial were typically a 62-year-old gentleman who had an underlying ischemic cardiomyopathy with NYHA class 3 to 4 heart failure symptoms, 
who was on appropriate chronic heart failure therapy, but had been hospitalized in the past year for heart failure with moderate depression and no cognitive impairment. This trial was a multi-center double-blind outpatient randomized control trial that randomized patients to either between 10 and 20 milligrams of escitalopram versus placebo and followed them for approximately 18 months. Their primary outcome was a composite of all-cause death or hospitalization. They looked at just over 350 patients, and ultimately they found in patients who had heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and depression, escitalopram was not an effective therapy for the treatment of depression in this type of a patient. The next study coming in at number four is Genetic Risk, Adherence to a Healthy Lifestyle and Coronary Disease, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This study applies to a 42-year-old male having his first MI despite the absence of any modifiable cardiovascular risk factors. The design is a composite of three prospective observational cohorts and a cross-sectional study of over 50,000 patients. The exposure is calculated cardiovascular risk based on a scoring system, including 50 alleles that are associated with increased cardiac risk. And four healthy lifestyle factors as per the American Heart Association. And these four healthy lifestyle factors were no current smoking, no obesity, regular physical activity, and a healthy diet. Bottom line is that healthy lifestyle reduced predicted genetic cardiovascular risk by up to 50%. So to me, this really said that, you know, there is evidence to suggest that clinicians shouldn't feel helpless in the face of genetic determinants of disease, at least with regards to cardiovascular health. Next up, coming in at number five, one of our first articles of the season that looked at the prescription of long-acting opioids and mortality in patients who were prescribed this medication for chronic non-cancer pain. This was published in JAMA in 2016. And your typical patient in this study was a 47-year-old woman who presented to the emergency department with chronic back pain or musculoskeletal pain and had used short-acting opioids within the past year. It was a retrospective cohort study for patients who had chronic non-cancer pain without evidence of palliative care or end-of-life care involved as part of their treatment plan. Their exposure looked at new prescriptions for long-acting opioids or either analgesic anticonvulsants or low-dose cyclic antidepressants to help with their pain management. They looked at mortality and found ultimately that the prescription of long-acting opioids for chronic non-cancer pain was associated with increased mortality, including deaths from causes other than overdoses, as you might expect would be the case in people with opioid therapies. The hazard ratio leveled out around and close to two, so very significant finding with regards to the use of long-acting opioids. Coming in at number six, we had a study published in The Lancet titled Three years of liraglutide versus placebo for type 2 diabetes risk reduction and weight management in individuals with prediabetes, a randomized double-blind trial. So this trial, applicable to mainly people in their 40s with a BMI of 27, dyslipidemia, and hypertension. The design was a composite of three prospective observational cohorts and a cross-sectional study of over 5,000 patients. And the intervention was giving liraglutide, 3 milligrams, daily versus a placebo for 160 weeks, more or less three years. So the bottom line was that in obese pre-diabetic patients, the treatment with once daily liraglutide for three years, along with 
exercise and a reduced calorie diet was associated with a significantly lower risk of developing diabetes. The hazard ratio for that was 0.2. One of the limitations of this study, however, was the high dropout rate. That is, around more than 45% of participants completed the 160 weeks of treatment, and the rest had dropped out somewhere along the way. Next up, we have a study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine titled Gradual versus Abrupt Smoking Cessation, a Randomized Controlled Non-Inferiority Trial. This study applies to a 49-year-old male or female who smokes one pack per day who expresses a willingness to quit. The design is a randomized controlled non-inferiority trial. The intervention is abrupt cessation, so that's quitting cold turkey, or gradual cessation, reducing smoking by 50% at week one and then to 25% at the end of week two, etc. The bottom line for this study was that abrupt quitters were significantly more likely to be successful than those who attempted to quit gradually, but overall rates were low, as only 20% of people remained abstinent from smoking after the 52-week follow-up. Interestingly, preferences to quit gradually were less likely to succeed, regardless of which strategy they were allocated to use. With regards to limitations for this study, there was no reporting of mental health or other addictions. As well, there was a pretty small sample size with only about 700 patients overall. The next study, study number eight, looks at the efficacy of oral risperidone, haloperidol, or placebo for symptoms of delirium among patients in palliative care. This study was published in JAMA Internal Medicine. This study applies to a 75-year-old male with cancer who is cognitively well receiving opioids with mild to moderate severity delirium. The study design was a double-blind randomized clinical trial. The study looked at the following question. What are the benefits of risperidone or haloperidol in reducing distressing symptoms of delirium in patients receiving palliative care? Patients received either 0.5 milligrams every 12 hours of oral risperidone or haloperidol. Bottom line of this study was that in patients receiving palliative care, those treated with antipsychotics had more distressing symptoms of delirium than patients who received placebo, which really was the exact opposite of what I was expecting for this trial. So it was pretty interesting, I thought. Limitation is generalizability. Patients had to be able to tolerate oral intake, which in a palliative care setting uh, is not always the case. Another limitation of this trial was that there was a small sample size. Only about 250 patients were included. Moving on to number nine, one of the recent studies that we covered on the rounds table with Jay, the short-term use of oral corticosteroids and related harms among adults in the United States, a population-based cohort study. Patients in this study were approximately 45 years old with an equal split between being male and female. They had one to two chronic diseases and they presented with primarily a respiratory or rheumatologic issue and were given, on average, a dose of 20 milligrams of prednisone for six days. The design of this study was a retrospective cohort study, and they also used a self-controlled case series. The exposure was to look at the short-term use of oral corticosteroids, and ultimately, they found that one in five outpatients use short-term oral corticosteroids, and surprisingly, or not surprisingly, within 30 days of initiation, the incidence of acute adverse events related to this corticosteroid use, which included the development of sepsis, venous thromboembolism, or fracture, increased by approximately two to five-fold above the background rate. A major limitation here was 
whether the indication for the steroid use impart the actual risk. And so, for example, if you looked at the development of sepsis in those with respiratory illness, it was about a threefold increase. In those with MSK issues, there was a hazard ratio of about 13. Um, what we don't know is whether the indication and the use for the corticosteroids in this setting puts them at an increased risk of sepsis because they might have had underlying infection to begin with that may or may not have been recognized by the prescribing physician. Lastly, but not least, coming in at number 10, clinicians' expectations of benefits and harms of treatments, screening, and tests, a systematic review published in JAMA Internal Medicine. Very, very relevant to our review of the evidence on the rounds table. Who does this apply to? Well, all of you listeners out there who practice and work within the field of medicine and healthcare. The design of this study was a systematic review, including quantitative primary studies with no restrictions on participant eligibility. The exposure was to look at studies that included expectations by physicians for the benefits and harms of imaging, cancer screening and treatment, fetal and maternal medicine, cardiovascular prevention and management, surgical treatments, and medical treatments, including medications. What did they find? Well, physicians rarely had accurate expectations of benefit or harm. We only correctly estimate the benefit of treatments 13% of the time, and we only correctly estimate the risks of harm 11% of the time. And sadly, we more often underestimate the harm and overestimate the benefit. The limitation to this study was that really we're not quantifying the magnitude that physicians are over or underestimating benefit or harm, just a dichotomous yes or no with regards to whether we do that or not. That wraps it up, the top 10 for you. I hope you enjoyed our selection. If you agree or disagree, please tweet at us. Go to our blog and leave us a comment or contact us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. And Emily now is going to take us to our favorite part of the show, (laughs) the good stuff segment, where we're talking about what we are reading about. Emily, what has caught your attention this week? Well, I just read a recent article in the New York Times titled, Hot Weather Workout, Try a Hot Bath Beforehand. This article was written based on a recent study published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. So I don't know about you guys, but as the weather is getting warmer outside, I just want to get outside and start exercising. Definitely. But exercising in the heat can be exhausting, and maybe we don't perform our best when we're outside in the heat. Ah, that's why I can never win those races. The heat. (laughs) Absolutely. So coaches have come up with many ways to help athletes cope with the heat. Some involve a process known as pre-cooling, which entails drinking icy beverages or applying ice to the skin before exercise on the assumption that we can better withstand high temperatures outside by lowering our body's internal or skin temperature before we start. Other strategies emphasize heat acclimation, which is the slower process of adapting to high temperatures over the course of days to weeks. During heat acclimation, your body changes in many ways, including starting to sweat earlier and more profusely, which helps reduce the buildup of internal heat and ease the demands on your heart. So many studies in the past have looked at the impacts of either pre-cooling or longer-term heat acclimation on exercise in the heat, but fewer have actually compared their effects head-to-head or examined whether you gain extra benefits from combining acclimation and pre-cooling. So this study investigated the effect of short-term heat acclimation combined with pre-cooling on endurance running performance and directly compared pre-cooling and heat acclimation. So after the exposure, the participants each ran a five-kilometer run and times were compared. 
The group that did not prepare at all performed the worst. With pre-cooling alone, athletes had better times than with no intervention. So actually 4% better compared to their first run. And in the heat acclimation group alone, it was even better. So 6.5% compared to their first run. Uh, but when heat acclimation and pre-cooling were combined, there was no statistically significant difference between heat acclimation alone and heat acclimation plus pre-cooling. So to me, it appears as though the best way to prefer our athletics in the heat is through acclimatization to the heat ahead of time. But if you're a pinch, in a pinch, pre-cooling will still give you an edge. But what you're telling me is I need to take a vacation in warm, sunny Florida so that I can perform better on my run, correct? Maybe you, Karen. I'm not sure about me. But... I want it. Emilio, what were you reading about this week? Uh, well, I found a really, really applicable article for us here in Canada uh, talking about the effects of cannabis. So, as you know, here in Canada, we're kind of in the works of legalizing marijuana. And this article, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, really went to kind of point out the fact that we really don't know much about the health effects of cannabis yet. I mean, we hear in the media that it's good for this and that and, and all good things about cannabis, but this article went ahead to point out that much of that evidence which they cite is quite inconclusive and uh, they suggest that really there's, there should be more research. So, for example, they found that the efficacy in treating the symptoms in cancer patients and people with respiratory problems was only marginal and there should really be more research before putting this forward to the general public. Another example was that chronic marijuana users were found to be more susceptible to mental diseases such as schizophrenia and others. Sounds like a study that uh, needs to be done and hopefully we can review on the rounds table in the future. Would you agree, Emilio? Oh, definitely. I think we should definitely look further into this before you know we jump into it. Well, that was better than good stuff. That was great stuff. Thank you, Emily and Emilio, for bringing that to our attention this week. And thank you, listeners. We're finishing up the first inaugural season as, uh, as our team on the rounds table. And we have a lot of people to thank. I'm just going to spend two minutes doing so. First of all, we want to thank Healthy Debate as our online host, without whom none of this would be possible to broadcast weekly and air our show. We'd like to thank Dr. Amol Verma, who is our faculty mentor on the team, and as you know, the founder and prior co-host of the Rounds Table. Emily Hughes, who joined us this morning, is our fearless leader and producer of the Rounds Table. Emilio Garcia Flores, who slid into the role of editor during uh, a transition. And of course, we would like to thank Bertie Zhang, who is our prior editor. And both of them have done a great job bringing you clean, edited, recordings throughout the season. Thank you, Anthony Maher, who is our communications uh, director out in the province of Newfoundland at Memorial University. And thank you to Shaliza Helani, who has brought you fascinating uh, segments along with Emily Hughes throughout the season to break up our show um, and, uh, and teach us a little something about emerging topics in medicine. All of our co-hosts who have dedicated their time uh, in their busy schedules to providing entertainment and bringing forth uh, interesting articles each and every week. And lastly, thank you to our listeners for joining us um, and listening and continuing to support the show. Obviously, none of it would be worth doing or even possible to do without your dedication and support. So thank you. Currently, we have over 127,000 downloads uh, of the show. And uh, we currently see about 7,000 people downloading our show each and every month which is a significant growth as we've taken over the show. 
That comes from over 120 countries around the globe. So thank you everyone for a great season. We are going to take a break for the summer, replay our uh, episodes from the first season, and look forward to joining you in September when we kick off an exciting new second season of the Rounds Table um, with bringing you the exciting and emerging evidence from the medical research each and every week. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?